2: Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. tonight. trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, a game of tick-tock row. More on the big battle brewing over one of the most closely watched deals in all of tech. Plus, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway betting big on Bank of America. So should you do the same? Our traders will weigh in. And later, if you're looking for love or own Don Juan, Dan Nathan found it in this name. Why he says investors should get ready to swipe right on this stock set. But we start off with the dollar dilemma. The Dixie feeling the pressure today as yields crumble and a strong euro marches just below a two-year high. This move lower, of course, has huge implications on commodities, rates, and multinational stocks. Tim, you say this is the sloppiest chart in the market right now. Why?
0: Well, look, the, the, this has not been orderly. Sloppy for, for the dollar is not something we should feel comfortable about. I, I actually think that in the very short term, I, I think the dollar is probably a little oversold. I think the uh, euro longs positioning, if you look at the commodities, uh, CFTC data tells you, I think we could see the dollar bounce a bit. But I think this trend is is, is intact. And I, and I think it's supported by uh, some of the fiscal dyna- dynamics and, and you know really also a, a current account surplus in Europe that people kind of forget about uh, and banks that are a bit better in Europe. But what does this mean for oil? I think what we forget is is that oil was really the the asset class that led us down into the abyss. And and this was uh, a Sunday evening when people were concerned about the rest of the world. And you saw that Saudi and Russia were not going to grant oil prices, whether that was truly tactically to move against the U.S. Uh, We'll talk about that at another oil show. Uh, But what it meant for asset prices around the world and certainly for hard assets was very dramatic. Oil has been the last to recover. And if you look at the, the crude chart, it actually broke through 42 in the 200 day-to-day. Uh, Brent is right there. Uh, these, these charts have been consolidating, and there's actually been fundamentals to support it as well. Uh, even though we know it's not runaway demand, you have had better PMIs around the world. You have had better ISM numbers. You have a dynamic where uh, inflation expectations also, I think, with the dollar doing what it's doing, are, are absolutely moving higher. API inventory numbers this morning, you actually had a draw of 8.6. They're expecting a draw of 2.6. So there are fundamentals here. And I just think that oil is the last chart uh, to to really recover. And I think there's substantial upside. I think if you look at Brent, uh, I think you could get this thing back up to 55 and still be really where we were on the precipice. So uh, have supply demand uh, dynamics for the equities gotten better? Look at what BP said. Uh, cutting the dividend 50 percent. Capital allocation mm-hmm. is equity friendly. Uh, the XLE hasn't been dramatic. It hasn't been an Amazon, but it has outperformed the S&P off the bottom. And the oil services have been the best way to play it. So, yes, I like this trade. Stay there.
2: I'm going to go to Rain Man here. Do you remember that date that Tim was referring to? I feel like it might be in your brain rattling around somewhere under your Ooh. coiffed hair. There are,
1: lot, there are a lot of things. I mean, I'm assuming you're talking to me. And there are definitely yeah. a lot of things rattling around. <laughs> I don't remember the exact date, but I absolutely remember the weekend. And it obviously took the entire market off guard because you saw what happened to the price of crude oil the next day and then in the subsequent Mm -hmm. weeks. And, you know, crude's a funny thing. When it was higher, the administration wanted it lower. Then it went lower and they wanted it higher. Well, now it's higher and it's just a matter of time before it gets to levels where they're not going to be pleased anymore. And that's a very difficult game to win. But getting back to the U.S. dollar, listen, I understand why for multinationals this is a good thing. And this is the first administration, I think, in the history of our republic that is openly talking about the want to have a lower dollar. But I'll say it again. Be careful what you wish for because you're getting it. And at a certain point, a lower dollar is no longer bullish. And, oh, by the way, folks, a lower dollar is extraordinarily inflationary. If you don't think it is, you're not paying attention. Your buying power goes down. By definition, that means it's inflationary. And although nobody wants to blame the Federal Reserve for anything, And if they're not in control of the dollar, it's their actions that are creating this. And at a certain point, a lower dollar is no longer going to be bullish for U.S. equities, in my opinion. So
2: this is really a double-edged sword. I mean, Karen, how do you look at the weaker dollar? A positive for equities or negative?
3: I think maybe in the short term, it's a positive Right um, I, I think that um, well, I also want to look at rates real rates are negative now, okay. so you can so we see the tenure come in a little, but real rates have gone down a lot, so what 's the rest of that is inflation, and this guy talks about, it. so inflation is here, and in the short term, I think that that will be somewhat of a floor for equities when you think about you don 't want to be in fixed income when there is inflation and so, I mean, I'm sort of positioning for that. It also ultimately will have the benefit of helping, to the extent that we have trillions of dollars of debt, inflation would help us get out of that debt, but obviously at some great cost. So I don't know how long they can sort of keep a lid on it. I, I want to have exposure to inflation because I think it is going to be here. I don't, so gold, I, I've been looking at gold. That's interesting to me. But Bitcoin also, I mean, oil, Tim talked about, is in, it's in some ways an um, inflation. But it's also fundamentally driven, right? The dollar being weaker makes oil more expensive. But demand also makes oil more expensive. And demand is coming back somewhat. But something like a Bitcoin, that's a truer, a truer measure of sort of fear of fiat currencies run amok. And that's what I'm sort of afraid of.
2: I think that this is the first time in the history of Fast Money that Karen Feinerman has said that she's looking into gold. Um, Oftentimes you say, I don't get gold. It's not my sort of trade. And yet here we are in this new world, Dan Nathan. Um, Are you on board that gold train, too, or are you uh, into other sort of weak dollar plays?
4: Yeah, I, I, I would focus more on the weak dollar plays. You know, you hear a lot of people talk. They try to sound smart. They say investing in bits versus atoms. We know what that is. We were around 25 years ago. <laughs> it's old economy versus new economy. Um, it is nothing new That's in that smart, regard. Yeah. But when you think about what's going on with a weak dollar and, let's say, rising oil, we know that that is actually the weak dollar benefits these large mega cap multinationals. They borrow here at basically nothing. Um, they buy back their stock. They used to make acquisitions positions, buy competition and expand overseas. And it's great for their margins. High oil is not a high input cost for them, right? So they benefit from the strong dollar. On the flip side of it, one of the reasons why we've maybe seen manufacturing, industrials and transports, um, you know, kind of lag of late is because of that rally back in crude that input is very important and obviously other materials that are input costs so um, to me it's just exasperating a trend that we're already seeing here Um, as far as gold you know Karen you know call me babes let's talk about this two thousand bucks for the first time ever maybe it's not the best time to start looking (laughs) at it I'm just saying okay
3: and by the way Dan would say I understand understand that I love Bitcoin
2: Dan would say, call me, babe, to, to Tim or Guy either. So for all of you that are you yeah, chomping out yeah, yeah. the oh, yeah, bit wow. to criticize him, he would say that I- to I'm those jealous. guys, too. I-
0: Frankly, I'm jealous. I- yeah. Come on, Dan. <laughs> there,
2: there are also some thoughts, Guy, Dami, that perhaps a dollar is losing its status as the, as the world's reserve currency. Um, is it, is it too early to, to start thinking about that?
1: No, I don't think it's too early to start thinking about that as well, at all. And I think that's absolutely problematic. And again, you know, I'm one of those Fed bashers, and so you can at me all you want on Twitter, but don't think for a minute that, you know, <laughs> creating $6 trillion out of thin air isn't leading to this. At a certain point, it's going to be a problem. I Listen, I understand why everybody thinks this this weaker U.S. dollar is this great thing for markets and stuff, but at a certain point, it's not. And I think we're close, and I'm glad Karen mentioned That real rates are negative because the same thing with 10-year yields, you know, at a certain point, those lower yields stop uh, being bullish for equities. And we are precariously close to those levels. I think, what the 10-year got, Tim knows probably better than I, but I think the 10-year got below 51 basis points. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're flirting with levels that we last saw, obviously, back in March. So although the equity markets are telling you one thing, I totally get it. We've talked about this for a while. I'm not one of these people that's crazy bullish. I'm not, but I understand what's going on. Uh, Underneath the surface, there are a lot of things that are concerning, and I'm with Karen on gold. I don't think it's too late at all. I hear Dan, what he's saying, but I think we're just getting started, and I'll say for the hundredth time, you're going to come in one day, Mel, and you're going to see the price of gold is up $200 and silver's up $8. Everybody's going, what's going on? And the next day it's going to happen again. And we are on the precipice of that as well, in my opinion.
2: Dan says, call me babe, to you guy as well. Uh, Let's bring in Lori Calvacine, head of U.S. equity strategy at RBC. Lori, uh, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Um, In terms of, of the dollar weakening, is this a concern? Is this on your radar right now?
5: It's absolutely on our radar. You know, I would agree with the term dollar dilemma, though. We see some very clear positives. We see some very clear negatives associated with a weaker dollar for U.S. equities. Uh, Look, I would say on the positive side, the first thing that jumps in my mind when you tell me that the dollar is weakening is, hey, this is great for earnings revisions in the U.S. When the dollar is weakening year over year, you tend to get upward revisions in the S&P 500. You see it for most sectors and you see it for things like industrials, energy and materials to the greatest extent. So it really helps reinvigorate that cyclical trade just from a mechanical currency conversion perspective. But we also know that when the dollar is weakening, we tend to see U.S. equities underperform non-U.S. equities. And we've been very worried about a rotation out of the U.S. back into Europe, back into non-U.S. equities. So I think there are positives and negatives. Um, Perhaps it's easier to make a relative call here, though, than an absolute call.
0: Hey, Laurie, it's Tim. I agree with the currency call, what it means for global equities. In fact, if you're an EM investor, more than 50% of your return profile typically is currency. Um, If you had to go around the world to a region, where would you want to be investing right now based upon both the currency factor and, and, frankly, the fundamentals?
5: So, you know, we we don't get that granular in our calls in terms of making those regional bets. But I will tell you, in my work, what I really keep noticing is the contrast of U.S. relative to Europe. And my phone's been ringing off the hook over the last few months talking to European investors um, and global investors based in Europe who are worried about the U.S. elections. Um, You know, what I tend to see on things like valuation, the U.S. looks expensive versus pretty much every region, but you especially see it relative to Europe. Um, And one thing we notice when we look at global large large-cap equity funds, and there we get really good color on U.S. allocations and European allocations. U.S. allocations in these funds have been sitting for the last few quarters, the last year really, at all-time highs. They've just been hovering. They're over-owned. The investors know it. That's why they're worried about the election. And if you look at their allocations to European equities, they're at rock-bottom levels. They're where they typically bottom out at, and they've been doing that for about a year. So when I look at U.S. versus Europe, I really do see the seeds for a rotation that needs to happen from a
3: Positioning perspective. Laurie, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. I hear a lot about how much money there is on the sidelines, and yet you're talking about over allocation. Is one of those two things wrong, or is the money somewhere else? Fixed income, where is it? Well, it's interesting.
5: When you look at the cash levels, you know, it depends on whose cash you're talking about. We know that retail investors have built a lot of cash. Um, If you look at the institutional managers, um, which is who I spend most of my time with, they aren't really typically allowed to hold a lot of cash. And in fact, what we've seen with some of these global investors, they've stashed money in the U.S., for safe haven purposes, um, a lot of the things that they own are these so- so-called, you know, secular growers. This safety trade, um, and to some extent, that's not really cash, but that's that's sort of a proxy for safety. Um, but there is cash out there in other in other investor bases. Asset allocation funds, for example, have a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines. What's interesting about those funds, though? when you look at their non-U.S. equity exposure, that is also at rock bottom levels. Um, Their U.S. exposure is kind of meandering in the middle, um, but we can see those asset allocation funds have had a lot of cash and do also have a need to move into non-U.S. equities.
2: Lori, at the top, you're talking about sort of the push-pull of the weak dollar in terms of positives and negatives. At what point does dollar weakness become a negative for the market. How do you think about that?
5: Well, I'll tell you the way I'm thinking about it today, and this may not hold true over time, but one of the risks we see for the market is what we call earnings sentiment may be on the precipice of a peak. And that's when we look at the rate of upward revisions on the sell side for S&P 500 companies. That stat is currently tracking at 66%. It typically tops out somewhere in the 70% type range. So another week or two, we could get there pretty fast. And this indicator is moving up very sharply if if we start to see the analyst community get very excited about the benefits of a weaker dollar to earnings expectations that could take us to that peak so uh you know i think that's one of the one thing that we can potentially watch the other thing frankly is we have to watch the money flows and see if we really do start to see these global investors taking money out of the u.s and moving it elsewhere
2: Lori, great to see you thank you thanks for having me Lori calvacina um tim i'll go to you since you're known as the ambassador in uh fast money circles In terms of the weak dollar. There was a time, at least. There there is still a time. There is still the time right now to call you the ambassador (laughs) and the EEM specialist. Um, So where in, in emerging markets do you like the best? Which market?
0: Well, the currency, uh, I think, as it relates to China, is is not going to be as obvious of a play, but certainly a tailwind. Remember, in the yuan or the renminbi, we, we certainly had a lot of fear around Chinese investing. I, I still think mega-cap Chinese talk stocks are very, very interesting. Tencent reports next week. NASPERS in South Africa has a major position in Tencent. Uh, if you look at the MSCI EM, so the ticker EEM is your ETF, or the VWO, uh, your Samsung Taiwan Semi, uh, Alibaba, Tencent, very top-heavy, and I think those are all stocks you can own. When we look over at Germany, the industrial story, and we've started to talk about where the auto uh, makers start to look a little bit more interesting, obviously, that is a very big German industrial trade, and I think global trade, as we know, German is, has the highest proportion of its economy to export, so those would be the places I would be excited about. EWG, which is the ETF for Germany, has outperformed the S&P as well.
2: All right, let's switch gears here. Uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, betting big on Bank of America. Berkshire has been buying shares of the bank for 12 straight sessions and now has a roughly 12 percent stake in Bank of America. Shares have been under pressure this year, down 30 percent. So should you jump on the Buffett bandwagon? Karen, you're there.
3: Yeah, (laughs) I'm I'm there. I've been on it. I've been on the Buffett bandwagon. it's interesting to me uh, that um, you know a couple of years ago uh, Buffett increasing his stake every day would have I think been um, much more positive for the stock than it's been I don't know if this is some of the Wells Fargo money that is now you know flowing back into Bank America but I really like the story um, clearly we're going to see giant credit losses but they've been provisioning for that for two quarters now I think they'll keep provisioning for a couple more quarters but I like it. It's an extraordinary franchise. It is not expensive. And I think that ultimately you're going to that value will out. It's just too cheap here.
2: Dan, let's say the Oracle of Omaha picked up his um, Motorola flip phone for some reason in my head. Oh, no, he has an Apple phone now. He switched phones. Um, He has an iPhone now and he calls calls you, Dan, and says, hey, Dan Nathan, what what do you think of my buying Bank of America for the past, uh, you know, dozen straight sessions? What would you tell the Oracle?
4: Well, I think it's a nice, meaty stock that he can kind of get into here. You know, I, I would say that it's the only thing in this stock market that makes any sense to me is the underperformance in bank stocks in 2020. And and I know that sounds kind of weird, but it's the one group that is actually maybe adequately pricing some of the headwinds that we have in our economy, some of the scars that we are going to feel from this recession. And, and just the, the likelihood that our economy has changed and the way it comes back over the next couple of years is, Going to be different. That being said, it's a great franchise, it's a cheap stock. Um, You know, all those people who are railing against bank regulation after the financial crisis, they should be very happy it was in place because these stocks might have been very, very, um, you you know, ready to go out of business given what we've seen in the economy right now if they didn't have these sorts of leverage ratios, um, you know, that they do have in place due to that regulation. So to me, listen. You know, we've been talking about it. Uh, Mr. Buffett, a tremendous, tremendous investor over the last 60 years or so. He seems a bit confounded, too. I think it's kind of interesting that the one group that he's buying is the worst performing group in the entire Mm. market on an absolute and a relative basis, the S&P 500. And
2: this may really speak to time frame. I mean, if you're a Warren Buffett-like investor with a very long time frame guy, maybe BAC makes sense. But if you have a one-year time horizon, maybe it makes no sense whatsoever.
1: Yeah, and I think you're confusing uh, Mr. Buffett and I because we share the same birthday. The actual day, if you know what I'm really? talking about. I know Dan likes to make fun of my... Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, age-wise, really. Not I mean, year. I just look a little bit better than he does Not at the this year. point. <laughs> With that said, you know, if you want, you want me to give some advice to him, I'll say, you know, as long... You know, right now, a, a tangible book in Bank of America, I think when they reported on July 16th or so, was 1990. So it's trading like 1.3 times... Tangible book, and Karen knows it's trading below book value. When this thing approaches, you know 1.8, 1.9 times tangible book, that's when you get out of it. So somewhere you, know, you can still accumulate up to one and a half, and then you start to got to scale out. As we get closer to 1.8, that would be my advice. Not that he needs any advice from myself.
2: All right, check out Shares of Square rallying to a new all time high today. The move comes after the payment company beat on its latest quarterly results. Square pointing to an, a big increase, a big one in users of its cash app. Square was supposed to report tonight after the bell, but released numbers early after Bloomberg reported the results, breaking an embargo. Square gained nearly 8% on this day. So is this the best bet in the payment space? I mean, Tim, this is almost an embedded would you rather with an open, you know, rather on the second choice. So what do you think?
0: The open, well, the open, (laughs) it's interesting because the open rather, uh, seems to have to be PayPal, but they're all afflicted. They're both afflicted in the same way. Or, or then do you go back to uh, Visa and MasterCard, which I think are also uh, seeing tailwinds from not only you know, uh, uh, contactless payments, but also just where e-commerce is going. Uh, the, the thing for Square, they, they took a lot of market share, obviously both between PPP loans, uh, what's been going on with their cash app, the stickiness, uh, the cross-selling within. I think it's been an enormous time uh, for Square. I, I think the valuation is really tough. Um, and I've been clear on that, and so which means I, I've therefore, since about $110, uh, I took a position and cut it by 80%. Um, so I don't, you know, I, I, I'm happy to still be long the stock. Uh, I took a lot of exposure off. ago, and my sense was it was very expensive then, and I was playing with the house's money. I think uh, it's a fascinating company. Uh, I think the stickiness here, I think, frankly, uh, everything that's good about Square is why you wouldn't want to own Bank of America, uh, and therefore, I think you do want to own some Square, but I would be waiting for a pullback today.
2: I mean, even if a percentage of this percent move in the after hour session is based on the momentum seen in the cash app, the big question is, can it even come close to replicating that Going forward, if if government stimulus is not quite the same as it had been during this past quarter uh, in terms of getting reduced, because that, that was a big reason why we had that boost, Dan.
4: Yeah, I, listen, the cash app, you know, well-positioned. Um, they had been moving into investments. They had been moving into loans, you know, Square. Uh, you know, some of these, the, the, the Square Capital business was something that was really exciting until small businesses went into the tank. So it really was this peer-to-peer. Now it's going to be um, a pay-with Um, uh, A pay with Square Cash will be the huge thing. They're taking, like Tim just said, a ton of share. They're well positioned. The problem that I see right now, aside from the valuation, is that exposure to small businesses. Um, Right now, it looks like in major city centers, concentrated areas, um, small businesses not coming back. There was an article in the New York Times that something like uh, 30 percent of small businesses in New York had closed already uh, for good just in the last six months or so. So we're going to see some tremendous damage there, and I think it's going to have to grow into that valuation. Sales grow, growing 30, 40 percent. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that's sufficient for the valuation it has right here.
2: All right. Coming up, we've got our eyes on shares of Roku on the move after earnings. We'll break down all the numbers and bring you the trade plus a match made in heaven. Why Dan Nathan is swiping right on this name. All that and much more when Fast Money returns.
5: You seek the key.
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a market flash in Pfizer and Bristol-Myers. Meg Terrell's got the details. Meg.
6: Hey, Melissa. Both of those shares are higher after hours as the companies have won a patent ruling on their blockbuster blood thinner drug, Eloquist. These companies are partnered on this drug, and you're seeing Bristol up almost 5% on this. Bristol does have the majority... Uh, of the share on this drug, and it is its second largest drug, bringing in uh, more than $7 billion a year. Pfizer also up 1.6% on this ruling, Mel. So some positive and uh, unrelated COVID news in the after hours for these companies. Back over to you.
2: Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell with the latest there. Um, Certainly, Guy, in in recent days, there have been many other reasons, as Meg had had sort of alluded to, um, for owning Pfizer, namely its deal with BioNTech. Uh, and uh, the vaccine that could be coming to the market.
1: That and the fact, that I think, I and mean, we've said this for a while, and it hasn't been a great performer, but I think Pfizer's just do cheap as well in valuation. Listen, Bristol Meyer's been an underperformer. You know, in order for that to break out, I think it needs to close above 65. So with this news, we're probably within a couple dollars of that. I think Pfizer out of the two is probably the better bet. And I think if you're looking, a little for, uh, for a little more beta, you know. Eli Lilly's come off a little bit since its all-time high. The stock has been a monster, you know. Out of the three of them, I'm not playing the game, but I think Eli Lilly sort of sets up the best of just all did. three.
2: Although you just did. Uh, breaking news here just out did, of I'm Washington D.C. Let's get to Kayla Tashi, Kayla.
7: Stimulus talks, Melissa, have broken for this evening. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi telling reporters that she's confident that there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. She just doesn't know how long that tunnel is. Well, for its part, the Trump administration says that if the two sides still remain too far apart and don't reach a deal by this Friday, their imposed deadline, that... President Trump will be seeking executive action to protect uh, renters against evictions and to reinstate uh, that $600 unemployment boost uh, to workers who have been laid off. The chief of staff, Mark Meadows, just made those comments in an interview with CNN and says that they will be meeting again on Thursday evening to see if they can reach a deal. Melissa?
2: Kayla, thank you. Kayla Toschey. Uh, it sounds like the administration really wants to make sure that there is a continuity in terms of these enhanced benefits, Karen, which would be a, a good thing for the markets, I would think.
3: I think so. I'm a little bit confused. I thought one of the sticking points for McConnell was not $600, right. something much less. So is it, was she saying that Trump's threatening they're going to give him $600 if we don't have a deal by Friday? That, that was sort of how I heard it, which doesn't, I mean, OK, that's, a, that's, that's an interesting way to negotiate. I would, there will be a deal, though, I think is the bottom line. Both sides need it too much. And, and they, on this one thing, or maybe the couple things, maybe China as well, but on this, they, there will be bipartisan support. They have to have a deal. It doesn't do any good. I know that it seems like the Democrats have a little bit of an upper hand right now, but they have to get a deal done. And the market has priced in a deal.
2: Yeah. Kayla, I think you you heard Karen's comment. You're still you're still there, actually. So this, I mean, this is framed as sort yes. of just an extension of the status quo until Congress can can decide. Correct?
7: That's my expectation, Melissa. The White House actually. Uh, as of last week, backed a short-term extension of that $600 benefit for another week so that they could have that not lapse as they were uh, in talks to get a deal. My understanding is this would be a short-term extension of that as they tried to broker uh, a compromise somewhere in the middle on that. But Meadows was not specific about the dollar figure, Mm -hmm. but the White House's position has been that it would support the $600 on a short-term basis and something like $400 on a compromise basis for longer.
2: All right. Kayla, thanks for clarifying. Kayla Tausche in Washington for us. Up next, we'll break down what you can expect from Uber when it reports tomorrow after the bell. But first, Facebook, are you for reals (laughs) with the company just launched today that many are calling a rival rip off the details when Fast Money returns?
4: What's on the horizon for financial markets?
2: Welcome back to Fast Money. We're following new developments on the big battle over TikTok. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo calling the video sharing app a significant threat said so the U.S. wants to see all untrusted Chinese apps removed from U.S. app stores. This comes as Microsoft moves forward with a potential deal for the company. CNBC's David Faber reporting today, the price tag for a TikTok takeover could come in as high as $30 billion. While shares of Microsoft have rallied in hopes for a deal, the tech giant's long history with China could actually raise some regulatory red flags. Joining us now is Longview Global's Wardrick Neal. He's a former senior China policy analyst for the Department of Defense. Uh, DeWardrick, welcome back to the show. Great to have you with us.
8: Great to be back.
2: What sort of hurdles would this deal face since it was effectively brokered by the Trump administration?
8: Yeah, very good question. Listen, we we all know that Microsoft has had a very long history in China dating back to 1992. That history has not always been smooth. Uh, At the moment, there being uh, search engine operates in China. They have a research and development uh, center there. And so there's been a lot of talk as you allude to about divestiture. But look, I think that's misaligned given what the facts are. Uh, what Microsoft has to do is prove to investigators that they can manage and secure TikTok user data better than ByteDance can. That, that's the task. And while the history of Microsoft is interesting, I don't believe that it's particularly relevant from the US side, because I don't believe a company that gets 2% of its revenue from China gives China much leverage over Microsoft. Microsoft, in my view, has to focus on convincing CFIUS that it can do a better job with managing data. That, to me, is the real argument, not whether or not Microsoft is in China's pocket. I I don't believe that. Now, the Chinese may demand divestiture as a way to satisfy the masses of the netizens who are quite angry about this deal. But I, I personally can't see why, from the U.S. side, that would be a real issue, a serious issue. It's about, can you secure the data?
2: It, that seems like it would be an easy thing to prove, to Wardrick. I mean, is there a question that Microsoft, a U.S. company based in Redmond, Washington, would not be able to secure data relatively better than a, a company based in Beijing?
8: Seems like a pretty straightforward set of questions that uh, they will ask and that Microsoft has to prove. Look, I have no real insights one way or the other, Uh, What I can say is this should be the discussion, not whether or not China has some sort of a 2 percent leverage over over Microsoft. The leverage is not just the
2: revenue line. I mean, right to Wardrick, I mean, the leverage is is, you know, all sorts of other things for other U.S. companies. It's not just against Microsoft. Um, so good.
7: we very have to think point. about that yes. and
2: more in a broader sense, not just the 2% revenue hit that Microsoft could potentially take if Beijing chose to retaliate in that way.
8: Very good point. Look, I think the question here is how will Beijing respond? And I think you point that out in a, good, in, in a very, uh, very good way. The, Beijing has a couple of options here for response. One, they could take what I call a symmetrical and proportional response, meaning they would target a company in the tech sector and a company that has relative or equal value, both, uh, you know, uh, what I would call uh, symbolic value or, or, or numerical value uh, to the U.S. and decide to hit back there. And to that point, I don't think it's Microsoft. They could also decide to finally publish this, what they call the unreliables list of companies that they think have done something to harm Beijing's interest. They've been threatening to do this now for almost a year, and that hasn't materialized yet. So this could be the trigger, and that would hit a a wide range of companies through a number of, of various sectors.
4: Hey, Dwardric, um, quick question for you. Given your experience, obviously, in the government, obviously one of the biggest gripes that U.S., the government, and our companies here have against China is this forced technology transfer. Do you think it's a good precedent to set on our part to, do, to basically combat forced technology transfer with forced technology transfer? Um, and, you know, just what does that mean for this increasingly globalized tech economy that we're in?
8: Yeah, very good question. Look, I I think that for many companies in this sector, this this sort of tit for tat is is new and that there's always been a concern uh, about what the Chinese are doing with respect to cyber and data. uh, And and the Chinese have banned a lot of of our uh, tech companies. Uh, We have not had a situation where we have been prepared to say to China, you must remove your company from you know from our country from our network so so that is new but i don't think it's going to go away but i think what has to happen is that at some point we have to start having a more a, a direct discussion about the rules of the road right now it's sort of a wild it, it's it's a wild space that is not defined and so we have retaliation after retaliation and companies just can't manage in a situation where they don't know the rules and they don't know when an incident like this may trigger a response from one government or the other. So I'd like to see a process where we really start a cyber dialogue, we really start to talk about putting some guardrails around this, putting a floor under this relationship. And, and that is just not happening at the moment.
2: DeWardrick, great to speak with you. Thanks for your thoughts. We appreciate it. DeWardrick McNeil thank, of Longview Global. Thank,
8: thank you for having me.
2: Karen, you've been concerned about what China could possibly do to retaliate. Um you know, as we see the story play out, what comes to mind now?
3: Um, Well, for one thing, I feel like there is, there will be some sort of retaliation. We always feel like we get punched in the face like we didn't expect it. We should expect it. The other day, I think God might have been you talking about, all right, let's say they were to say to Apple, you know what, we're going to take a piece of your uh, revenue from all of your Chinese uh, retail stores. Like, I have no idea if that would be what they would do, but it, it would certainly be Sort of, you know, a a very big statement about how we we can't just go in and sort of usurp something like TikTok.
2: Yeah. Well, we've been talking about this uh, acquisition of TikTok. Who needs TikTok when you can have this? You're looking at a side-by-side comparison of TikTok. And as of today, (laughs) its newest rival called Reels. That's Facebook's version of the video sharing app. So, I don't know. Can you tell the difference? I'm not going to ask Guy because he probably can't. Um, I'll go to you, Dan. Dan.
4: Listen, you know, Facebook has been tremendous at copying other apps. I will tell you that they copied Snapchat. Snapchat's still here, right? And so at the end of the day, you know, to me, I think that they're going to have a very hard time um, unless TikTok is shut down, a very hard time getting the kids off of this thing. It is doing a damage um, to the attention uh, universe that, 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 that teenagers have right here. It's just really good at what they do. I'll just tell you guys this one thing. I do not think that Microsoft is going to get this company unopposed at a number that 30 billion or below. I just don't get how um, Zuckerberg or Tim Cook or Sundar Pichai wouldn't call up Trump, tell him some really nice things maybe even say, hey, listen, we'll cut you in on this thing. It just doesn't seem the way we do business here, that one company will be anointed one thing. I know that those other companies were right in front of Congress last week, regulatory scrutiny, the likelihood of large acquisitions. But I just don't know why those companies would let this happen, why they wouldn't do everything in their power, especially a few months before an election, um, you know, less than a half a year between what could be another administration and some different thoughts on this sort of thing. So I would be very surprised. If Microsoft gets TikTok unopposed at the price that they want?
0: I, you know, I, I mean, I don't know why TikTok, you know, I realize Dan is probably TikToking daily. Uh, he's really, he's saying it's his daughters, but it's actually probably him making goofy videos. But, <laughs> but why, why, you know, why shouldn't Facebook be able to succeed here, especially when Reels is loaded into the Instagram app and Facebook has proven that they, they can dominate in this space? I mean, why, why isn't TikTok my space? So um, I, I might be a little bit concerned about micro, for Microsoft, if I'm an investor or whatnot, running in to buy something. Uh, I think it's still very early days. And I, I don't know why there can't be competition. And frankly, I, I applaud Facebook for this. I don't, you know, I don't know that they should be vilified, as long as they're not copying patents, um, they, they, of co- there's tremendous competition in the social space. And on some level, engagement is really a function of, of what, who makes it easier to do the same thing. So um, TikTok is, is being forced to say, I agree with what everybody said here, although uh, you know Huawei, uh, we, we were going through this for the last two years, and I, I don't think we've seen any real retaliation despite the pressure we put on Chinese Chinese's biggest hardware company. Um, so uh, I don't know. Uh, I think China is going to be tactical. They never react when you expect them to. They react in ways that I think sometimes are much more subtle, Um, but I think TikTok, uh, excuse me, TikTok uh, and Microsoft is a a very interesting deal for Microsoft, but why shouldn't Facebook be copying them, and why shouldn't Facebook have reels, which is already out in India, uh, which is one of the first places to ban TikTok, and it's doing very well.
2: Coming up, we're watching Shares of Roku after the company reported its latest quarter. We'll break down the numbers and later we are counting down to earnings from Uber. What options markets say you should expect when the ride hailing giant reports tomorrow. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Roku hitting after hours session lows on the back of results. Let's get to Julia Borson with more. Julia.
6: Well, Melissa, first Roku moved higher after reporting results the beat expectations across the board top and bottom line results on user growth and on advertising. But the stock gave up those gains as CEO Anthony Wood warned investors that the ad industry outlook remains uncertain for the third and fourth quarters of the year. And they believe the total TV ad spend will not recover to pre-COVID levels until well into 2021. Though this quarter, the company's advertising outpaced ad industry trends. They said they're seeing an influx of new clients They said, quote, we remain confident in our ability to grow our ad business, albeit not as much as we would have expected prior to the pandemic, as marketers reallocate spend and follow consumers in the shift to streaming. Now, the company said it wouldn't give any guidance because of potential interruptions to the retail supply chain, as well as to consumer behavior. And then also, of course, that uncertainty about advertising. Melissa, Anthony Wood was pressed on the fact that they don't have deals to include Peacock and HBO Go on Roku. He kept it vague. He said he wants to add all the content they can and that they want to work out terms that are a win-win. Back over to you.
2: Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. I I think to some extent, one would expect that ad revenues could be soft, Karen, but um, in terms of the extrapolations that you would make uh, based on this, where would you go?
3: Well, I don't, I think to me, it just sounds like they're just being conservative as they should be. I mean, the rest of the business is doing great, right? They got a big beat on active uh, accounts, a big beat on hours. So that's, you know, very central to the story. And I think that them saying the ad market is weaker than before the pandemic, that's, that's not news in any way. So to me, the only thing wrong is that, you know, the stock is at nosebleed valuations and it's well over $100 off the, off the low from March, I think. Um, I don't know what they could have said that, I mean, I guess given more certainty, but how can you do that in this environment? I thought it was I thought it was a pretty good quarter, actually. Uh, very good. Yeah. Guy?
1: To Karen's point, I mean, I'm looking at it. active accounts up 41% year-over-year, streaming hours up 65.9% year-over-year, and Tim's favorite, ARPU, was up 18.3% year-over-year. Those are staggering numbers. But to Karen's other point, I mean, the stock went from basically 60 bucks to 170 For you technicians out there, this is somewhat concerning because the level that we just seemingly failed at was the same level we sold off from back in September of last year. So... You know, you armchair technicians, of which Carterworth is not. He is at the, as you know, uh, Mel. He's sort Pantheon. of in the Parthenon Pantheon. of technicians. Whatever exactly. It is, yeah. uh, you have a major double top at 170, <laughs> so you got to look for a reentry point. And quite frankly, given
2: the move. It probably comes in around 145 or so. All right, coming up, Uber on deck to report earnings. Should you request a ride with this stock or just tap the brakes on the name, we'll bring you the trade. But first, Dan Nathan says love is in the air for this standout stock, the name, when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Investors swiping right on shares of Match today. The stock hitting a fresh all-time high after topping Wall Street estimates for its latest quarter. Match Group owns, of course, popular dating apps like Tinder, Hinge, and OkCupid. Noted a surge in activity and offered upbeat guidance suggesting dating activity remains strong even during a global pandemic. You heard me right. Dating activity remains strong even amid (laughs) a global pandemic. Um, Dan, you say this could break even higher. Why? Why?
4: Yeah, it could. It's very different, though, than when you think about some of these other um, e-commerce or, uh, you know, marketplace stocks or anybody in the cloud doing anything right on the Internet where you've seen these trends kind of accelerate over the last few months during the pandemic. When you look at Match.com, their sales, their earnings got cut in half during this time period. It got spun out a few months ago from Interactive Corp. So investors are looking at this as a standalone right now. And at this point, when you think about the guidance that they just gave the commentary they just gave, and where estimates are right now. Whereas those other names, all those other ones performing really well, you're going to have to start discounting some sort of deceleration of growth that they've seen over the last few months. With Match, now you might have to re-rate this stock higher as you start thinking about what 2021, 2022 look like. So to me, this is the sort of thing that could be very binary. If you get any vaccine news in the next few months or so, investors will get in front of a stock like this and say this is going to be a great 2021 rather than some of their peers that do other things where you might see a deceleration of growth in 2021.
2: Now, one would think using logic that this would not be a a beneficiary of the stay-at-home, it would not be a a stay-at-home trade whatsoever, Karen. And yet here we are talking about match-up 12 percent during a pandemic.
3: Right. Well, I I want to disagree with Dan, if I might, Um, I wonder, you know, when Reed Hastings talks about who is his competitor, Fortnite, is it also match or online dating? You know, people are at home, they got time. What the heck? So I wonder if there is a vaccine, people will Ah. not be at home, not be, you know, swiping left and right. I don't know. It's not my area of expertise, uh, online dating. But I'm just wondering if they're the beneficiary of that effect. And in fact, it will subside. I think
2: that's. I don't know, Dan, if you have a response to that. I mean, not that. Not that any of us I, are experts I, in no,
4: online dating. A response. <laughs> okay. I, I do have a response, and, and this is really simple. I mean, their activity got de- demolished in Q2 and even into Q3. So the estimates that they just beat were lowered estimates. So if you look at 2020, their earnings and their sales for these uh, these three quarters, not including the first quarter, are literally down. They were cut in half, right? So my point is very simple, is that you don't incrementally need to see that much better activity, right? I, I, and I also disagree with the, the Netflix obviously benefited from everybody being at home. I think the earnings and the sales hits demonstrates the fact that people were not dating online and they're going to do so more after we get out of this quarantine. All
2: right, coming up, options traders are putting the pedal to the metal as Uber gears up to report results. we so bring you the trade next. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Uber revving up ahead of tomorrow's earnings report, and options traders are betting the stock really hits the gas when the numbers cross the wire. Let's get to Bono and Eisen with the action. Hey, Bonowin.
1: How's it going? So um, heading into earnings, calls outweigh puts two times to one. But I'd like to note that earlier in the session, that ratio topped out at about four times to one. Moving ahead to this Friday, if you take a look at the at-the-money straddle. Options are implying about an 8% move in either direction between now and then. That's in line with what we've seen from earnings moves from the company of the last four fiscal quarters. And the trade that really popped out to me was the August 7th expiry, so this Friday, 35 strike call. That traded just over 5,000 times for about 54 cents, putting your break even at 35.54, about 7% from current at the money. The buyer is betting... That, you know, the trend is going to continue. We're going to see volatile and positive uh, momentum on the back of earnings. The seller, of course, is uh, betting that this stock is going to stay in that 30 to 35 range that we've seen since about June.
2: Dan, you probably saw this action. Your thoughts?
4: I, I did. I follow everything that Ison does over there, uh, Ice, as we call him. Listen, you know, I think the way he laid this out is really interesting. The stock has just had this 10 percent roof in the last three days or so. If you want to play for a breakout above 35, above resistance, you do it with short dated calls and you play for that short squeeze. But you don't want to be long this thing breaking 30 to the downside.
2: All right. Ice, we'll see you soon. Bono and Ison for more options <laughs> action. Be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 530 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. trade, around the horn, we go, I know you don't like change, Guy, but I'm going to go to you first. Guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I could talk for like a minute here and just kill everything. No, Freeport-McMoran <laughs> had a huge move today, and you would think that you'd get out of it. I think FCX is just getting started. Freeport-McMoran, Mel.
2: Tim Seymour.
0: When I speaks, I listen. Yeah, look, I think Uber's a buy here. Think of how this stock has consolidated with a lot of bad news in rideshare. I think Postmates is an important acquisition for them, and I think The upside is here.
2: Ice being Bono and Eisen, by the way. Uh, Karen Feinerman. Of course. Who else?
3: Yeah. Facebook. I agree with Tim. You know, I don't think it's priced in for big success with reels. And remember, you know, McDonald's is bigger, but Burger King is actually a little older, and White Castle's even older than that. You don't need to be first. Mm. So I like Facebook. (laughs) Dan Nathan.
4: Yeah, I'm going to go with Timmy's uh, Coke trade here. It looks like this thing wants to retake 50. That 3.5% dividend yield looks pretty good.
2: What? All right. Thanks for watching. Fasty back here tomorrow at 5 Mad Money. Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.